Good morning, everybody. We are at the halfway point in our series through Ephesians, and today sort of marks a pivot. There'll be a change. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is dealing with a lot of theology. It's very rich in theology. Now, the last half of the book will deal a lot with behavior and application, how you ought to live in light of that theology. Now, that's an oversimplification because it's not as if the first three chapters are pure theology and no Christian living. It's not like the the second half of the book has zero theology. But as a simplification, we're turning the point from heavy theology in the first three chapters to a lot of This is now how you ought to live in light of that theology. Now, before we get into the text, I want to review some key themes and concepts that we've been reviewing actually every other week because uh, they're so important in understanding the rest of the book. They serve sort of as the interpretive grid by which you read the rest of the book of Ephesians. And so week one, I introduced you to this big giant Greek word, anakaphaliosistai, and it's roughly, loosely translated as the word unite. And the reason why that's so important and critical for the entire series is that the Apostle Paul, in this letter to Christians in the area of Ephesus, makes the claim, he makes the claim that Jesus, the crucified man who died the slave's death, tortured upon a Roman cross, that in and through him, God the Father is uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth. A radical claim, first to say that anybody is doing that, but even more crazy when you think about the life death of Jesus. The crucified Jewish Messiah, tortured and nailed to the slave's death, the slave's cross. He has become king of the world and is uniting all things under his banner. Now the question arises, what is he uniting? And in previous weeks, we've introduced you to these two circles, and they're representative, two spheres that kind of point to two domains. When God creates the world, he creates things in pairs often, and these pairs or domains were designed to come together in unity and oneness. So you have heaven and earth, they're meant to be together in oneness. You have Uh, humanity designed to not divide and fragment, but to be one. You have man and woman, husband and wife, meant to to, to come together as one flesh. But rather than that unity maintaining because of sin, there's been a divorce in these domains. And then the divorce is followed by a fragmentation. So for instance, heaven and earth ought to be one united. There's friction. There's divorce that's occurred. And there's fragmentation That's occurred. So heaven and earth have been at odds, and there's a spiritual war, and there's spiritual realities in the heavenlies that have a direct implication for what's going on down here on earth. And likewise, rather than one worldwide humanity uh, united, you have a Jew and Gentile division taking place. And after Jews and Gentiles split, you have Gentiles, which is 99% of the world population, anyone who's not ethnically Jewish, then they fragment into nations and ethnicities and tribes. And then underneath that, you have even more spheres or domains that are meant to be together in oneness, but torn apart because of sin. So men and women, husband and wife, there should be harmony in that. But the history of humanity is one of just horrible things that takes place between men and women. And even, even the best marriages in this room have their problems. There's not this perfect unity that's displayed. This happens every seven weeks where I start off second service fighting a sneeze. 
and I'm pretty good at it. I'm getting better. I fought it for a good four minutes right there. And I don't know, there's probably one person in this room that has like some, some scent that I'm like randomly allergic to, but it happens this service like every seven or eight weeks. I'm almost through it. I'm fighting. These videos all go on YouTube now, so it's, you know, it's painfully embarrassing. Um, man. Okay. So they're supposed to be one, but they've been torn apart because of sin. Now, last week, Sam preached on chapter three of Ephesians. And in chapter three, Paul talks about Jews and, Jews and Gentiles coming together. Those two domains are two spheres. And in it, the apostle Paul states, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, the language leading up to this was epic and huge. Paul talks about this secret mystery that's been hidden for all time, but now at the culmination of the ages, God is revealing what no human, no spiritual power principality has known, and that secret is, essentially, y'all Gentiles get to be saved too. That's it. And it's sort of anticlimactic for us because you're expecting like, man, this is some secret, man, the devil didn't know, the demons didn't know, no human knew. This is gonna be like a, like Luke, I'm your father type of moment, type of huge. It's like, oh, well, people who aren't Jewish also get to be included in God's family. You're like, that's it? Yes, that's it. That's the mystery hidden. And it's because we're 2,000 years divorced from this and oftentimes we forget the sort of narrative arc that's established in the first pages of Genesis. This is a big deal. The whole Old Testament is God's working with Israel. Gentiles, non-ethnically Jewish people, 99% of the world's population, it's not their story. But the mystery is that God's story includes everybody. Now you have to go back into Genesis to really feel the weight and tension of all of this. In Genesis, God creates the world, and all of those domains are in harmony. Everything's doing what it's supposed to. Heaven, earth, sun, moon, male, female, land, sea. The domains are working together in oneness, and there's no sin. Sin enters the scene, and it spirals out of control, and you have a fruit being eaten, and then the very next page, it goes from that sin to murder. Cain and Abel, brothers. You can't get any closer than that, right? Two brothers, and there's murder. And then the very next page, a story that's often forgotten but incredibly important, the story of a guy named Lamech. And Lamech is said to, he, he gives a poem in, in the book of Genesis, and his poem talks about how his, he kills a man and his vengeance is 77-fold. Now this is the, the author's way of winking at you, of saying, hey, just a, a while ago, God said that his justice, his vengeance is sevenfold, and now Lamech is saying his is 77-fold. It's Lamech's way of saying, I'm greater than God. I, my vengeance is greater than God's. More importantly, Lamech takes two wives. He takes two wives. Now, what was just established in Genesis? For this reason, a man leaves his mother and father, cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Man, woman, marriage, one flesh. What occurs on the very next pages of the Bible? Two wives, polygamy, and murder. Now, oftentimes, modern people who are skeptical of the Bible will make a claim. See, look how, 
how backwards the Bible is. Look how archaic it is. There's the Bible promoting polygamy again. It's like, wait a second. You're not listening to the story. Before sin, man, woman, one flesh. Harmony, unity. Immediately after sin, murder. And then another murder. murder. And now, rather than complete oneness in marriage, you have polygamy, a fragmentation of God's original intent and design. <clears throat> now these patterns of sin continue into Genesis 11, which is the climax of the story of sin in the book of Genesis. Because Genesis 12 will introduce us to Abraham and God's solution. But Genesis 11 functions as the climax of this spiraling of sin. And it ends with the story of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, tons going on here, but just a few things. When does humanity unite? Humanity unites in corporate and collective evil when they are trying to usurp God. They want to ascend to the heavens and be like God. They also want to disobey God. How do we know they want to disobey? Last line, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They don't want to be scattered. Unite. What is the first command in scripture? It's to be fruitful and multiply and cover the face of the earth. Humanity was supposed to be image bearers across the whole earth. They don't want to be image bearers. They want to usurp God and unite united corporate evil. Secondly, they are trying to make a great name for themselves. In the very next chapter, Genesis 12, God promises Abraham part of his solution to the problem. He promises him a couple things. He says, Abraham, you're going to have a great nation, great people, you're going to have your own land, and I will make your name great. God is the one who makes your name great. He is the one who bestows that upon you. But in Genesis 11, you have humanity uniting in corporate and collective evil to usurp God, disobey his command to disperse across the earth, and they want to make their name great. So what's the consequence of this in Genesis 11? More fragmentation. This is where God comes down and he fragments the languages. And you have for the first time humanity being divided up into different languages and ethnicities. Before this, they are completely united. In their evil, by the way. But you have that fragmentation. Now, since human beings have divided up by ethnicities and nations and languages, what has been the story of humanity? What have we been doing? We've been killing each other all of the time. This is the story of humanity. You have to understand, we live and occupy this little blip in human history where there's general peace. I mean, the world's still a very bad place, but it's generally, in his, by historical standards, at a relative time of peace. And I hope you know how fragile that is. If you be a student of, of World War I, you can realize how one simple thing can set into motion global catastrophe. We're occupying a brief blip of peace. But human history is filled with humans killing each other 
all of the time. And you have murder and war and genocide. And we fight the other people on the other side of the river or the other people in this nation or even today, you can fight people in your own community if they live on that block. Wear this color. See, human beings are hopelessly tribal. And what I mean by that is we will gather around people who look just like us, talk like us, and dress like us, and then we can create a narrative while the people over there who don't look and talk like this, they're, they're the bad guys there, what's wrong with the world? The, the, the height of that is, of course, racism, where human evil then says, because you're this color or you're this ethnicity, then you ought to be treated poorly or killed or we're going to go to war with you. Racism is always the climax of it. But you have to understand that even if we were all the exact same color, we'd find ways to divide and kill each other. Racism is just the peak manifestation. Even if we're all the same color, we'd kill each other. Sam mentioned this uh, last week, I believe, but this happens in genocides often where people kill their own people. But you saw this horribly demonstrated with the genocide that happened in Rwanda relatively recently. So you had two people groups, Hutus and Tutsis. They are closer to each other ethnically than they are to any other people group on the face of the earth. They are like the same. Living on the same street, ethnically the same, closer to each other than anything else on the face of the earth, but they still found ways to divide. Said, well, you're different in this way. You're different in this way. And what happened was a horrible atrocity of countless lives lost. Men, women, and children being killed and butchered in the streets because you're different. So racism is the, the top manifestation of it. But man, you got to believe, even if we're all, we look the same, we'd find ways to kill each other. This is uh, demonstrating in a much lighter way, but to, to prove a point, uh, it happens in high school. So let me take you back to high school. Some of you, it's going to be a longer journey than others. Uh, but when I was in high school, um, everyone divided up into, into like crews or, or cliques or groups. And we found people that sort of were like us and were into the things that we were into. And then you kind of just spoke badly of all the other people. So you're right high in my time. It changes by the era. But you had like your cowboys you know, those, all those dudes, they, you know, if Gilroy permitted, they wear their cowboy hat and they would listen to country music. And you had your jocks and your cheerleaders. You had your, your band nerds, your choir geeks. You had um, your card, Magic the Gathering dorks. Um, you know, <laughs> sorry, Zach Buffum, uh, how to call you out. But you know what I'm saying? Because if you weren't, if you were one of them, you, th you were cool. Man, I got my level 58 mage or whatever like that. I'm ready to roll. Cool. I, I don't even know if that's relevant. Some of you laughed like it might have, I might have guessed right. I don't know. Um, but you know what I mean. You can go back to high school and literally at lunch, people gathered with people that were like them. I wasn't cool, so there was just, I don't even know what we were. There's just five of us that like huddled around and talked bad about all the groups. Um, but you know what I'm saying. You went into your corners and then, you know, you, you look down upon people. My, in my time, it was just the era, uh, skating was about to get cool, but it wasn't yet. So everyone kind of thought the skaters were bad. If you called someone a skater, it was like derogatory. Oh, she's going out with that skater guy. 
and it meant like he's borderline homeless. Uh, <laughs> that's what it meant because it's like, man, I kind of look homeless, man. And then all of a sudden it got cool. You get this though. Racism is the top of that mountain. But human beings, we fragment and we create narratives and stories of why we, why we hate each other. Now, what the Gospels are declaring is that in and through the Jewish Messiah Jesus, God the Father is taking all those fragments, those puzzle pieces, and bringing them together. He is building one worldwide family of people composed of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And in Christ, those things are coming together under the banner of Jesus. This happens literally and symbolically in the book of Acts, the very first couple pages. Jesus is crucified, resurrects, ascends into heaven and says, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you my spirit. Wait for him. And this is what occurs. Now that we're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does it mean? But others mockingly said, they're drunk, they're filled with new wine. So what's going on? You have Jewish people gathering in Jerusalem from all the nations and they're going to hear the gospel in their own language and then be able to take the gospel back into the nations which is sort of a hint at what Jesus was talking about when he says go therefore to all nations all people groups all ethnicities teach them the gospel baptize them in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit in Babel you have humanity seeking to ascend to God and make a great name for themselves. And God comes down and scatters them, the fragmentation. But in Jesus and through his spirit, God comes down and brings back the fragments and it begins to unite them into his one worldwide family of neither Jew nor Gentile. So this is the powerful claim. And this is why the statement is so powerful. This is the mystery that Gentiles all the broken puzzle pieces, everyone outside of Israel, Gentiles, you're included. You're fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This has been the problem since Babel. We hate each other. We kill each other. We divide. But now there's one banner in which we could all unite under. And that's the banner of Jesus and in and through the crucified Jewish Messiah, God the Father is uniting all people. That's the heavy theology of chapter three. And on that point, Paul then pivots and begins to say, in light of that great truth, this is how you ought to live. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as we were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you feel that theme again? One, 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 unity, 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 one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It's a bringing together. And Paul starts this by saying, in light of all this truth that I've been laying down, you need to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called, which should be terrifying, right? Because you've all been called to different things in life. You've been called to certain career paths, called to, to love your spouse, called to raise your children. Some of you have been called to serve your country. Those are all great callings, okay? No calling is higher than the call of King Jesus, You were called by the king of glory. He called you by name, adopted you into the family. And Paul says, you better walk worthy of that calling. I don't want to do this. It's one of those things. No, I'll pass. It's like, you know, when going back to high school, when you could take advanced math. Nah. (laughs) Nah, I'll I'll take my C plus in the normal math. (laughs) It's a pass, man. I'll take that one. I want to do that. Walk worthy of the calling. And how are you to walk worthy of this calling? He lays it out. You do so by walking with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, and you are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Now, why, is all, why are all those attributes so important? Because God is calling people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, a multitude of differences. People who would never normally hang out, people who would normally never talk to each other, but he's calling them together to be united as one under the banner of Jesus. And if you're gonna undertake that project, you better have some humility, you better have some gentleness and patience, and you better learn how to bear each other's burdens in love. Otherwise, the project is gonna fail. This is not going to work. Now, interesting, those characteristics and attributes like humility, gentleness, patience, in in the ancient literature, that's never seen as, those things aren't seen as positive. Those aren't positive things. Like, who wants to be patient and gentle and humble? It's the Christian ethic that has taught us that those things are good things. And you know this intuitively because when someone tells you to be patient, you be patient. You be patient. I've been waiting for 10 minutes, man. Let me talk to your manager. Be patient. <laughs> Customer's always right. I don't want to be gentle. Nobody wants to be gentle and patient and humble. But Paul says you got to learn to do that. If this church that's composed of different people from different backgrounds is going to come together, you better learn how to do those things. And so ask yourself, is your walk one of humility, gentleness, patience, one that bears with one another in love, one that is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit? Are you eager to maintain unity? Because by the way, in our cultural climate, it appears as if no one is eager to maintain the unity. You know, we often, and I, I make fun of myself, rightfully so, that I like to be right more than I like to be Christ-like. 
You find yourself in that boat? You'd rather prove a point online than persuade someone to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Some, I, I mean, I see it. Some of you make points online and you make a point that I agree with, but you do so in a manner that I'm going, no one is more likely to become a Christian by your behavior. No one. It's just harmful. It doesn't mean don't speak the truth. We'll get to that in a moment. But it means there's a way in which Christians do so. And our world needs people who are humble and gentle and patient. And that's not weakness. There's a strength in that. And the church needs to teach the world how to do that. Because we're not doing that stuff. The second half of this is this sort of poetic... A, like, almost like pledge of allegiance. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to the call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, this, this idea that there's one body, there's two levels to this, two layers, and one is often talked about, and one is not so much because it's harder to, to, to grasp. I'll deal with the one now and we'll come back to the other part later. But first, what is often talked about when the scriptures say there's one body is the fact that if you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ and you all have a place. Everyone has a gift. Everyone has service to, to, to give to the church and to God and we should all work in harmony and unity. And you know, it's sort of like a children's uh, Bible lesson, but, it, but it's true. It's like, you know, there's some of you, you're the shoulder in the body of Christ, and some of you are a thumb, and some of you are an ear. When we all work together, the body moves and, and we're healthy, which is great. It's a great analogy for kids, but, you know, when I heard it when I was a kid, the first thing I'm wondering is like, well, well who's the big toe? Because I don't want to be that. I want to be the big toe of the body of Christ. But, but you get it, right? It's, it's a helpful metaphor. It says when we all serve together and we're in unity, the body of Christ is functioning in a healthy manner. There's much more to that. We'll return to that later. He says, there's one Lord, Jesus, the crucified Messiah. There's one faith, one faith that, that we all share, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now next, Paul is going to go on And he's going to discuss something that ultimately becomes one of the top 10, maybe top five hardest passages in the New Testament to interpret. So, fair warning, I'm not going to lay it all out. If I were to give you all the different views and get into the inner logic of this, this slide, um, it would take up our whole time. What I'm going to try to do is succinctly demonstrate where the majority of the views land because where they land is ultimately the point of what Paul is trying to get at, and it sets up the next few verses. Here it is. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions? The earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. All right. So what is occurring is Paul is most likely alluding to an image of Moses 
where Moses ascends and descends on Mount Sinai and comes down with the Torah, the Old Covenant, the law. He's doing so, though, by quoting a psalm. So Paul quotes a psalm, puts his own twist on the psalm, and that is supposed to hearken back and allude to an action of Moses. And then what Paul does is overlay Jesus upon that and say Jesus is doing something very similar to this. So it works like this. Jesus at the cross and resurrection has become victorious. That's the war imagery of taking the captives captive. And he is the one who descended to earth. He dies the death on the cross, but then he ascends and as victor and as king of kings and lord of lords is now giving gifts to the church. So the main point in all of that is that Jesus Christ is victorious because he descended and ascended and is now at a place where he's giving gifts to the church. So the question then is, what are the gifts to the church? And that's the next slide. He gave the gifts. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every word, wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, what are the gifts? The gifts are, Christ has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. It's sort of like leadership and teaching gifts. In other places of scriptures, there's a greater list of gifts, spiritual gifts that Christ gives to believers. And if you are in Christ today, if you are a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ, and he has gifted you to serve his church. And he's gifted you in many different ways, and you ought to bring those gifts and serve the church. In this section, he's talking about these sort of leadership and teaching gifts. And he says, those have been given so that people in those positions, verse 12, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's a very important concept here. My role, I fit into the teacher category. I am supposed to exercise my gift of teaching so that you are equipped to ministry. Oftentimes, we say like, oh, that's the pastor or the minister. And that's obviously true in one sense, but what Paul is saying, no, he is a teacher who's designed and gifted to equip you to be the ministers. You are the ministers of this church. You are God's agents of reconciliation in the world. And so my role and the pastors and leaders and teachers, we're here to help equip you to minister to this broken world. And what does that look like? What's the purpose? He goes on. For building up the body of Christ. In these equipment, the equipping, there's a building up of the body, a building up of the church. And there's supposed to be a unity of the faith in that. And you're supposed to increase in your knowledge of the Son of God. And you are to mature into adulthood so that you're no longer children tossed to and fro by bad doctrine. So the leadership and teaching gifts in the church are meant to equip you all so that you can grow in unity and knowledge and not fall for false doctrine. You are the saints prepared for the work of ministry. Now it's easy to miss because sometimes when you read that you just go, I'm not talking about me, I'm not the saint. I'm not, you know. 
But when the Bible talks about saints, the Bible's talking about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're a saint. You may not feel like it. You may not think it. Your spouse may disagree with my biblical interpretation at this point. Your kid may want to set up a meeting with me after. You're a saint. You've been called with the highest calling by the highest king, adopted into, into his family, set apart. You are holy and declared righteous because of the work of Christ. And because of that, you are a saint being equipped for ministry. And when that happens, all the rest follows. And lastly, it says, this is the hard part, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this whole sweep, this whole section, this is, this is Paul's logic. Humanity is being brought together under one banner, the banner of Jesus Christ. And when they come together, it's going to be very difficult to maintain unity. Therefore, you have to be gentle and humble and kind and patient and bear each other's burdens. And you have to be eager to maintain this unity. And the way you'll do it, the way you'll be enabled to do so, is by the equipping of the saints for ministry. And as you serve in your gifts and in your ministry, you'll minister to each other and to the world in harmony, in unity. And that itself will be a sign to the world that you belong to Christ. That's the, the whole logic of it. We'll come back to this in a moment. But it's very important. When the church is the unified body of Christ, the Bible says that is how you tell the world and the satanic powers and principalities lurking behind the scenes that Jesus is victorious. We don't think that way. But when the church is united, the worldwide family neither Jew, Gentile, every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is a sign to the world and the satanic powers and principalities that Jesus is indeed victorious. Paul concludes with this section. This, this first sentence is, very, is easier said than done, right? Rather, speaking the truth in love. See, we all have bents. We all have temperaments. And some of us are more likely to be truth-tellers and emphasize truth, truth, truth. And some of us are more likely to emphasize love. You know, there's some of you who, you actually like, like confrontation. You know, they just need to hear how, I'm going to tell them how it is, man. You know how it is? They need to hear, ain't no one else doing it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell them how it is. Well, don't, you're going to worry about, um, well, maybe they may, I don't care if they take it the wrong way. This is their fault, not on me, bro. And then, you know, on the opposite end, there's some of you like, oh man, I'm so worried and stressed about this. I got to talk to someone and I'm so worried they may take it the wrong way. And just whatever happens, I want them to leave the conversation knowing that I love them. And it's like, you never got around to actually telling them anything. Some of you know this, you go to confront someone and at the end of it, you're just like, nothing happened. And the truth tellers look down, you're just weak. You're weak. What is the Bible saying? You need to learn to speak the truth in love. And you gotta know which, how you're wired because you're gonna lean one way or the other. And you gotta get better at the one you're weak at. Because let me tell you, in this culture that we're living in right now, 
People do not know how to speak the truth in love. And the church needs to lead the way because we're failing at this miserably. Christians speak truth, but they speak it in love. Eager to maintain the spirit of unity. Patient, gentle, speaking the truth in love and still bearing for each other's burdens. That's how the church does things. Now, I want to return to the image of the body of Christ. Because like I said, there's two levels to that. The first is one of unity and the fact that we're all called with different gifts to serve God's kingdom. But there's another layer to this that's uh, much more powerful and in a sense frightening, but also encouraging simultaneously. Okay, so if the church is the body of Christ, who is the head? Jesus, Jesus is the head. Where's the head? Right now, where's the head? Not on, yeah, metaphorically it's on top of the body, but where is Jesus right now? I know you're hesitating because some of you want to say everywhere, but you know that's not what I'm looking for. Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. Now, when Jesus came to earth the first time, he brings a part of heaven with him. God came to earth. Heaven, God's kingdom came to earth. So part of God's reality came down here among us normal human beings. Jesus is crucified and resurrects physically. Physically. He ascends to heaven in a physical body which means part of humanity is now up there in heaven. Now get, get why this is important. Heaven and earth have been at odds. But in the person and work of Jesus, Jesus brings a part of God's reality to earth and he brings part of earth and humanity back up to heaven. Now, if the head, Jesus Christ, is in heaven, his body is here on earth in the church. Jesus is the one in whom all authority rest. He is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. How is the head ruling and reigning and exercising sovereignty on earth? Through his body, the church. You and me and his worldwide family of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, it doesn't mean God only works through the church. God is free to do whatever he wants. But I'd like to say his preferred tool of choice is always the church, his body, which means God is extending his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven through broken, fallen vessels like you and me, which in turn means the greatest problems this world has, the greatest issues that we're wrestling with, the greatest evil that manifest in this world, that exists and the church ought to confront it. Wherever Satan might appear, wherever evil might appear, the church is called to proclaim gospel truth to those issues. And I'm talking about big, I'm not talking about little stuff. You know, because we could talk about like little stuff in Gilroy and be like, yeah, the church needs to do something about it. It does, but there's also much larger things. Because some of you are thinking, yeah, maybe the church should come together and fix First Street, man. Because... <laughs> It's like a war-torn, it's like, you know? Some of you are, you can't afford a four-wheel drive vehicle, so you can't even go to Safeway to get groceries anymore. You know? You go, you turn, you turn, try to go groceries on Safeway, and you got, you got a young new family, a little baby in the car seat. Pray your way into Safeway, man. 
Some of you might be called to deal with that issue. But the church is the body of Christ. Our head is Christ Jesus in heaven who is ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. And all authority has been given to him. And so we have been filled and empowered with his spirit to proclaim the gospel to all nations. It's a power from on high. And that power manifests itself in our unity because we have been called and we have been gifted and now we serve. Every last person in this room, if you are a Christian, you have been called by Christ himself by name and he's gifted you to serve the church and the world. And as we do that, we are to work out these gifts and equip ourselves and maintain this unity. Okay, so now, Circle back to something else, this unity in Jesus. All of human history is filled with men and leaders and dictators and tyrants and kings and nations trying to unite people around their banner. This is what Caesar was trying to do in the first century world with the Christians. Pax Romana, Caesar's bringing peace to all the world people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But, but he was doing it by force because get with Caesar or get nailed to a cross. But in the crucified one, the gospel proclamation is that somehow God himself through his son is bringing all these people from different backgrounds, different tribes, tongue, nations, socioeconomic backgrounds, family backgrounds, bringing them together in Jesus. And when we do that, again, we are telling the world that Jesus is victorious and that Jesus is indeed God's son. Now, it, remember the story, how Genesis goes, because it's easy for us to, it's easy to forget. Genesis, it's the fragmentation. And now in Jesus, the puzzle pieces come together. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is called the high priestly prayer. It's what Jesus prays before he goes to the cross. Jesus speaking to the Father says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Now here it is. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When Jesus goes to the cross, he says, the world will know that you sent me, Father, because of their oneness, because of their unity. You speak to the world and the powers and principalities at work against God's kingdom. You speak to them truth by your ability to become the one body of Christ. It's a sign, it's a symbol, it's a signpost saying we are doing now in the present what God is going to do in the future. Bring all people together. And when you do it in the present, you are letting people know who your king is. And you're also demonstrating that in and through Jesus, this is possible because everyone else has tried, but it never works. It never works. Everyone tries to create this type of unity. There's always a satanic parody, imitation, or counterfeit to what the gospel can accomplish. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can make people come together. What you see in culture with many things with the gospel is they'll, 
hijack it and twist it so it sounds just enough like it and try to get people to unite around a different banner. And so there's this massive emphasis on unity and diversity in our culture. And have you noticed that the massive emphasis on that may not only not be working, it may be making things worse, where we begin to notice more differences? I mean, I'm sure America was more divided than it is now at other points in human history, but in my like 30-something years, it's just like everyone hates each other all of the time. Because the secular world will try to do what only the gospel can do. They'll parody it. It's a counterfeit. And by the way, they'll slip in another banner to unite under. And it's not just with these issues. It's with everything. You can see it with all sorts of things. And whenever the church doesn't lead the way, the satanic powers and principalities will hijack it and distort it and put up a counterfeit version. But let me tell you, the place where people come together, where you lay aside socioeconomic background, ethnic background, you lay those stuff aside and you center around a person, that is the church. Now I'm going to show you an example of, it's not as heavy, so it's a little easier to talk about, of what, what I'll call a satanic counterfeit. Um, that's Ice Cube. And uh, Ice Cube is going to talk about the death of Kobe Bryant. Now, I'm a La- I, feels good. I'm a Laker fan. Um, a lot of you are Bay Area sports fans and stuff like that. So, you, you know, you had a, a few years where you'd gloat and come up to me and make some jokes. How are your warriors? Um, <laughs> now, it's funny, but there's a little sting to it. And I'll show you why that sting is so important to understand. Ice Cube is going to be asked, what did Kobe Bryant mean to L.A.? What did Kobe Bryant mean to L.A.? And in his answer, you are going to see a perfect description of what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. Now, I'm not saying the Lakers are Kobe Bryant are the gospel or Jesus. But listen to this, and I want you to see the words used. An ice cube, who is, who is a hard dude, is going to be choked up over the death of Kobe Bryant. And he's going to tell you what Kobe Bryant meant to the people of L.A. And in doing so, much is revealed about the American condition. Kobe, on this city, I said it earlier in the show, it was him and the Hollywood sign. That's what you thought of with L.A. for the last two decades. What did he mean to people here? You know, people don't understand how much um, uh, athlete like Kobe or Kareem or Shaq or Magic, how much they really hold this city together. Yeah. You know, this city has a lot of fault lines. Right. Not only in the ground, but, but with the people. Yep. And what brings us together is the love for our teams, our, our Lakers, um, Dodgers, you know, today I have no hate for the Clippers, the Clippers and the Raiders, I mean the Rams and the Chargers, all the teams that's here hold this city together because it gives us something, you know, to, to unite yeah. behind. 
mm-hmm. where you know it's it's gang banging, it's economic differences, it's racial differences, and our teams hold us together. So, you know, Kobe is is the some of the glue that holds LA together. Okay, key phrase. LA is filled with fault lines. Catch this, and he didn't mean that literally. LA is in friction and in tension. He mentioned socioeconomic differences, ethnic differences, gang rivalry. All these issues that are there, why no one gets along, why everyone's got a side to pick. But there is one thing that brings us together, and that's the team. And if you've ever gone to a Laker game, uh, you know this, because you're going to see the rich man who's got season tickets in the front row, but you're also going to see the family that saved for five years to get the seats way in the back. And you're going to see people of every different ethnicity. I went to Kobe Bryant, one of Kobe Bryant's last games, and people flew from around the world to go to that. People of different ethnicities, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who are on different gangs who on another night might kill themselves, kill each other. But for the Lakers, they lay those differences aside and they come together under that one banner and they all cheer their champion. Now follow this. The enemy is the other team and your team is going against them. And Kobe Bryant was their champion. Kobe Bryant for two decades whether you liked him or not, in LA, he was the champion. And he fought your battles on your behalf. He defeated your enemy. And in his victory, you had victory. And around him, people with all their differences come together. All the fault lines are erased. Now, there's nothing wrong with sports and rooting for a team, but that is a satanic parody of what only the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish. And when the church doesn't demonstrate this type of unity and isn't able to do it, people will flock to anything else that can do it. They'll flock there. We have a different champion, a different king who fought our battles for us, whose victory is our victory. And at the end, if you you catch him, Ice Cube corrected himself because he was speaking too strongly, uh, although I think it reveals what he really thought. The very last line, he says, "Kobe, Kobe Bryant is the glue that holds... Kobe Bryant is a part of the glue that holds this city together. The Christian claim is that Jesus Christ is the glue that brings all the pieces back together. And when we do so, we tell the world who we belong to. And we demonstrate to the powers and principalities that have kept us divided for centuries that Jesus is indeed victorious. And there will come a day when what the church is doing in the present will be echoed for eternity. This is the last book of the Bible and the ushers can pass out communion. Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. There will be a day when people from every tribe, tongue and nation will all praise the king at the same time. 
And right now, this Sunday morning, you are participating in the present, what God will fully accomplish in the future. Because at this very moment, as we prepare ourselves for communion, you have to understand this. At this very moment, on this Sunday, there are hundreds of millions of people spread across this globe from different languages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different nations. We might not look alike, talk alike, we might have any of the same interest, but we're united in something greater than anything this earth can offer. We're united under the banner of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we're called to maintain that unity with gentleness, humbleness, meekness, bearing one another's burdens. We do all of those things. Sam mentioned this last week, but there's a Christian on the other side of the world who you might have nothing in common with. He's a Cambodian farmer who lives in poverty, who doesn't speak your language. If he is a follower of Jesus, you might have more in common with him than you do your neighbor. Because blood's thicker than water, right? There ain't no blood thicker than this. This binds all people together. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Through the broken body and death of the Jewish Messiah, the mystery has finally been revealed that God loves and desires all people from all nations and all languages and all tribes and we do in the present what he will culminate in the future. Jesus takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And because of this blood, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all part of the one body of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've adopted us and brought us into your family, and we recognize that we were purchased with blood. Father, may this church walk in humility and gentleness. May they walk with patience. May they learn to bear each other's burdens. May you continue to equip us for the work of the ministry, and in turn, may we display for the world the one worldwide family of God. And that that may be assigned to the world and to the powers and principalities, Lord. We thank you that you've chosen us, that you've saved us, you've given us your grace and brought us into your family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You need to pray about anything, our prayer team will be up front.